From the Amazon to the Himalayas, God is accomplishing his mission. Welcome to Amazon to the Himalayas podcast, stories and conversations with the global church and for the global church about the mission of God in the world. And now here is your host, Paul Aiken. This is Amazon to the Himalayas podcast. I'm your host, Paul Aiken. Our guest today is Eric. Eric and his family live and serve in Istanbul, Turkey. Eric is a good friend of mine. We actually first established contact back when he was an undergraduate student and by God's grace have been able to stay connected through the years. And I'm just greatly encouraged by him and his work and his example to me. And so really excited to have this conversation. Eric, welcome to the podcast. Paul, great to be with you. And uh, yeah, looking forward to this conversation. Awesome. Well, why don't we start maybe with you just sharing briefly your salvation testimony. Tell us how you came to faith in Christ. I usually like to start this actually with how God saved my dad, because that's really where my salvation testimony starts. So the Lord saved my dad and he was baptized in his late 20s. Right around the same time, he met my mom and married my mom and I came into the world like seven, eight years later. And that really is where it begins because in the Lord's kindness, I heard the gospel daily, weekly from my parents. They would take me to church. That's where I would hear the gospel from, you know, the first days of my life. And so the Lord just used that, the faithfulness of my parents, them pointing us to Jesus all the time to bring me to a saving faith at a young age. So while I don't have... (laughs) this wild, you know, testimony, you know, that can be true for a lot of people who grew up in the church. If I just look back on the Lord's work in my dad's life, I see his faithfulness, his goodness, so that I could hear about Jesus from from day one. And yes, so I confessed at a young age, was baptized at, at a young age. But I think too, like a lot of kids who grew up in church, I struggled with a form of legalism self-righteousness even. So I like to tell people how self-righteous was I? Well, I was a WANA clubber of the year every year and I was proud of it. (laughs) That's kind of how I was holding on to my self-righteousness, but God just in his grace sanctified me and is continuing to sanctify me even 20, 30 years later from that point, showing me that it, it is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to God's glory alone. So he's breaking off that self-righteousness day by day and getting a better taste of, of his grace and his goodness to me. So thankful for the God using my parents in the local church that I grew up in. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. It's, it's encouraging to hear kind of how salvation in one generation can be really beneficial, kind of leading into the next generation. So praise the Lord for that. I know right now you and your family live in Central Asia, but, but you weren't born there. You actually grew up in the West Coast, Southern California. So maybe tell us a little bit about how a guy like you from the West Coast, Southern California, ended up in Turkey. Yeah. So again, it kind of starts with the faithfulness of my parents. My dad took me on a short-term trip when I was 12 years old to Latin America to work at a camp and kind of help build this camp that was connected to an orphanage. And I probably did like 10%, 
you know, probably worked and labored maybe just 10% of the time at that camp. I don't know how useful I was on that trip for the camp and for serving them, but God used that greatly in my life. And that was just the start of a long process of the Lord calling me and and subsequently my wife together overseas through short-term trips, through our local church, emphasizing that, praying for people overseas, and my parents really encouraging and uh, lovingly, graciously kind of pushing and directing in that way. So while I was interning and on staff at a local church, I was preaching. Our senior pastor gave me the opportunity to preach kind of through the book of Acts a couple of times with the emphasis on getting to other parts of the globe. And I said, I think it's a responsibility of every faithful Christian to consider whether God is calling them to a place where there's less access to the gospel. And it was like in in that moment and kind of throughout that day and the rest of that week, the the Lord pressed upon my heart, well, have you and your wife (laughs) actually asked that question? And that began a process of uh, us applying with an organization and kind of just asking, Lord, where would you have us go? In a lot of ways, how we got to Central Asia and how we got to Istanbul, I wouldn't recommend. We kind of randomly, I guess you could say, ended up here. But looking back, it was in the Lord's providence that we ended up here for two years. And God just affirmed in that two-year period that this is where He wanted us for the next season of our lives, 20, 30 years. You know, if I had 50 years of ministry ahead of me, it seemed prudent and, and wise to use the next 20, 25 in this place, grateful for the leadership we had and the experience. And the Lord just gave us a strong desire to continue to live in this place. A lot more details to that story, but that's the gist of how the Lord sovereignly used my parents, our local church that I grew up in and was on staff at for a few years to just head us, lead us in this direction rather. No, that's great. Many of the people who may be listening to our conversation today may not know a lot about Turkey. They may think of Turkey as, you know, that's something that we eat for Thanksgiving time here in North America. They may not know much about Istanbul. Maybe they know the song Istanbul, not Constantinople, something along those lines, but really maybe not much beyond that. So what are some things you can tell us about Turkey, about Istanbul that that might be interesting to some of our listeners? So we have now lived here by God's grace for the last nine years, and I feel like I'm still learning about the deep, rich history of this place. You know, if most people, if you open your Bibles, there's going to be a map of Turkey in the back. We know that it's a place where the Apostle Paul spent his missionary journeys, or a good chunk of that. The seven churches of Revelation are here. Antioch, the place where people were first called. Christians is located in Turkey, even the Ararat Mountains where Noah's Ark is supposed to have landed, like is in Eastern Turkey. It's the cradle of civilization, right? Every major empire from this part of the world has really gone through here. Different empires have controlled it at different times. It's just an important place historically. The crossroads uh, where East meets West Europe and the Middle East and Central Asia kind of all converging together. It's been and continues to be a significant and important place in history from Constantine up until now. The Ottoman Empire 
up until the 20th century and now the Republic of Turkey the last hundreds of years. Because of that, it's a pretty eclectic place, culturally speaking. Lots of cultures have come through here and still do. So while it is a majority Muslim country, when you get below the surface, it's much more complicated than that. It's, again, just influence Russia to the north, Central Asia to the east, the Middle East below and Europe to the west. And you feel all of those things, especially in a place like Istanbul, which is a huge metropolis, officially 17 million people, but with refugees and students, Afghans coming into the country now with all that's going on in Afghanistan, just people from all over the world landing in Istanbul for at least a season of their lives. So that just makes it a beautiful, complicated, messy place. But I think it's one of the most interesting and beautiful countries in the world. I know I'm biased, but uh, I do feel that way just historically and beautiful sites and the people are beautiful as well. That's good. I want to switch gears just a little bit and ask a question related to the state of the church. And so obviously you just mentioned that this officially is a Muslim country. I think the percentages would be, you know, 98, 99%, something along those lines to be Turkish is to be Muslim. But is there an evangelical church presence? And if there is, what does that look like? Yeah, by God's grace, there is an evangelical church. It's small, less than half a percent of the 84 million people. Alongside the local national church, there are other churches that are growing from countries that surround here where believers are fleeing as refugees. So God is even using that, just like in an Acts 8 and 9 sort of way, the scattering of his disciples is bringing the gospel to different parts. And that's true for neighboring countries where Christians are fleeing persecution, fleeing as refugees and coming into the country. But the national church is still pretty small. A lot of it actually is made up of Orthodox background minority people groups. So we know about Eastern Orthodox Church. The hub of that has been in Istanbul for centuries now. And so minority people groups, Assyrians, Chaldeans, Armenians, who are Orthodox background, Many of them have become evangelical followers of of Jesus Christ, believing in the gospel. It's no longer a cultural adherence for them, but rather a true faith in, in Christ. And in the 70s and 80s, in a lot of ways, that was kind of the beginning of the evangelical church in the 20th century. And by God's grace, there's been small, steady growth since then. We are seeing more growth throughout the country and in Istanbul from minority Muslim groups, but even from the majority Muslim sect as well, the Sunni Muslims, God is saving people. It is a complicated, I think we're going to talk about this in a minute. I think it is a complicated task because it's not, if you were to just engage people here as though they were Muslims or Orthodox Muslims, it would be a little bit different than that. But the state of the church is is here, and by God's grace, growing slowly. There are established churches and even visible churches that the government allows there to be. There is freedom of religion here on the books, and so churches are able to gather publicly, but are very small in that way. There is some development as well. There's 
beginnings of good theological education, beginning of leadership development that's happening here, beginnings of, of even trying to see beyond their own churches, to plant more churches in unreached districts and unreached parts of the country. And so for a small percentage of the population, God is still working in and through his church here. And so we're grateful for that and grateful to be a part of that. You mentioned some of the challenges, and so I want to zero in on that just a little bit. You know, we, we talked about how Turkey as a country officially is, you know, 98, 99% Muslim. You know, each Turk that you would meet would would identify themselves as a Muslim. But as you mentioned, it's a little more complex than that. There's obviously other barriers that are kind of mixed in there or other things maybe mixed in with the worldview. Can you talk about maybe some of the challenges, some of the hurdles or obstacles that are in the way for some of these people of wanting to follow Jesus, to put their faith and trust in Him? What are some of those hurdles, obstacles for people that kind of have a, I guess, in this worldview there in uh, Istanbul? Yeah, definitely a majority of the people around us, even a super majority, 95%, would consider themselves and identify as Muslims. But when you dig a little deeper, it gets way more complicated than that. So I think a good example of that is one day my wife and I were finishing up getting our driver's licenses. And we were sitting down with our driving instructor and a couple of the other people in the office drinking tea. That's a big deal here. You got to drink tea if you're going to live in Istanbul, live in Turkey. Grateful that the coffee culture here is growing as well. So there's good filtered coffee available, but I love tea as well. And so we sat down with these four people and as it typically does, we started talking about religion and politics. You kind of can get to those conversations pretty easily here. And so I tried to go back to the Old Testament and start to point to different passages of scripture that I knew point to Christ as a fulfillment of those things. So I start to kind of walk through that. They're listening respectfully. And then all of a sudden, one of the guys there stopped me and he said, hold on, hold on just a second. I want you to know something. As you're talking about the Tevrat, it's called here. I want you to know something about the four of us. Our identity cards say Muslim. We kind of grew up in a Muslim culture, but that's not really who we are. I am a materialist. This guy next to me is nationalist of this minority group. That lady right there is a secularist. And that guy sitting over there, he's an alcoholist. And that really is true for the whole country. Everybody that you sit across from having a cup of tea may have the identity of Muslim kind of on foreground. But when you dig deeper, there's maybe something deeper that they're holding on to, like a form of materialism, nationalism, secularism, even different forms of deism are, is growing among the young people here, where they're okay with the idea of God, with the idea of Allah, but religion, formalized religion, either the majority religion or really any other religion, they're not okay with. There's even atheist groups here, so in a like Muslim-majority country. And then alcoholism is a problem, right? So there's all the things in the, in the world that people put up as idols. And so that's why I like to tell the people that I work with, people that I lead, like, let's have a framework for the gospel in mind. Let's think of something like God, man, Christ's response, and be able to fill that in well from scripture. But we have to tell that gospel and form that gospel according to the person who's sitting across from us. Because if we start with this idea of God 
like from the Quran and try to use that as a bridge, that might not connect with that person who's sitting across from us. So my teammate who's been here for a few months is doing great in language learning in the Lord's kindness. He's got to sit down and start studying the new Testament in English with a local Turkish friend, huge opportunity for that, for God to bring that before him just two, three months on the field. And so he was diligent to memorize the name of prophets in Turkish that are referenced in Matthew chapter one, because that, that's what they were going to study together. So he memorized that. He, t- he said, okay, these are the prophets. This is what it means. And so he sat down with his Turkish friend and started talking about those prophets and said, yeah, I learned these prophets' names. And his Turkish friend said, oh yeah, maybe. I guess that's maybe their names. I don't know. I've never read the Quran. So he was prepping for a really religious person when in reality, there was a secular person nominal with nominal beliefs sitting across from him. So we really need to take a good, faithful and clear gospel presentation, but listen to the person who's sitting across from us to know how to present that gospel. We might need to convince them that a God even exists or that it's not a a God of deism who's far away, but it's actually a God who's close and active and sovereignly working in the world. So that's just some of the complication here in Istanbul. The Great Commission is a call to go, and a call to go is a call to prepare. Whether you're called to advance the gospel in your local church or on mission fields around the world, Southern Seminary is committed to preparing you for a lifetime of faithful ministry. Designed with flexibility and personalization in mind, the Master of Divinity in Great Commission Studies allows pastors, missionaries, and ministry leaders to prepare for their own unique call to ministry. It's designed to equip students with the biblical foundation and the practical training needed to present the gospel clearly in cross-cultural missional settings. To learn more about the Master of Divinity in Great Commission Studies, go to sbts.edu bgs or go to the episode notes for this podcast and click the link to the Billy Graham School of Southern Seminary. There, you'll learn how listeners to this podcast can save $40 when applying for classes. That web address again is sbts.edu slash bgs. That's really helpful. So I think that kind of gives us an idea of just some of the challenges that are there. It's not only that worldview that seems to be mixed in a variety of ways, but also even just the the sheer numbers. You mentioned earlier the population of 17 million. I mean, it can be an overwhelming thing to think about how do you tackle this, but We know that the God that we serve is mighty, he's powerful, he's at work. The next question, I'd love for you to tell us maybe just some of the things, when you think back on the last two to three years, what are some of the things that you have seen the Lord do in this place? There's people I know around the world who are praying for you, praying for your work, so so tell us what the Lord's doing. Yeah, there's a few things that come to mind. One thing that comes to mind is just the movement of peoples that God is bringing through Istanbul. So there's people working in a lot of different languages here, Arabic, Farsi, Uzbek, English, East African languages, Turkish, other minority languages. And so the movement of peoples by God, sovereignly working in the midst of catastrophe and wars and persecution to bring people to a place where they might have access to the gospel. And so we've seen that among refugees from surrounding countries come here, hear the gospel, and believe. We actually had the opportunity to disciple two young brothers who were fleeing war for two years. We got to study the word with them almost every Thursday night, walk through First John together. And now 
they have moved to another country in Europe and are start are a part of a new church plant there in their own mother tongue. So God is sovereignly working through or and orchestrating all those things that's happening throughout the globe. But then as you come and look closer at what God is doing through local churches here, just in the Lord's kindness, we have a lot of friends and coworkers who are building deep relationships with pastors and leaders and elders of churches. And we're seeing God use those relationships, use those friendships for his glory to build up those churches and even to get the gospel out to the lost. So some examples of that, just a couple years ago, one of my coworkers planted a church alongside a local brother who actually was his language helper 13, 14 years ago, and now is a pastor of a church. They planted a church in a district here where there was no church. There are 39 districts here in Istanbul, and more than half of them have no group of believers gathering together on a regular basis. And so they targeted one of those districts that had no group of believers. And when I say districts, these are places of 250,000 to a million people, each of those districts, not small (laughs) places. There's hundreds of neighborhoods here. So they targeted one of those districts and covenanted together and planted a church. And now two years later, even through COVID, they are seeing people come to faith through online broad seed sowing. People are requesting New Testaments in droves. They're finding gospel-rich videos, gospel-rich articles, gospel-rich books online through different avenues, contacting those ministries. And then those ministries are giving those lists to local churches. Those churches follow up. And so this particular local church followed up with a lot of those people. And last year, sorry, even earlier this year, even saw eight of those people baptized and brought into their local church. We're seeing that happen in multiple places where we're building relationships with local believers over time, takes a lot of effort, a lot of trust, a lot of good language and culture to come alongside them, encourage them in the work and be evangelists ourselves and faithfully proclaim the gospel in a clear way that's faithful to scripture. God is blessing that in his sovereignty And that's just one church. There's two or three other churches like that in mind where we're partnering alongside these local churches. One more story that I want to tell from my local church. So I'm part of a local church that a coworker of mine has really been struggling and wrestling to help form for the last six years. By God's grace, it is forming, but not without a lot of struggle. One of the brothers who is now one of the elders, was under church discipline for a year because of some sin that he fell into. But by God's grace, he has repented, confessed that before the church, and is now back in leadership. It's a small church of maybe 14, 15 people. But even last night, I was sharing the gospel alongside one of my local brothers with a young man who's been counting the cost for the last month and a half. And it all came to a head last week when he was arguing with his girlfriend about faith. And his girlfriend said, no, Islam is the true way. And he asked her, have you ever even read the Quran? And she said, no, but it's the true way. 
And that was kind of the last straw where she rejected him and refused to continue being his girlfriend. And so he was depressed for two days. And finally, one night, he threw his blanket off, he said, and he prayed, Lord, change my heart and open my eyes because nothing else is working. And went to sleep that night, got up, got into the car with some of his coworkers to drive to work and looked up in the sky at the clouds and was amazed by the beauty of the clouds and felt like there was a light coming from God himself towards him. And he said to his coworkers, guys, guys, do you see those clouds? Look how beautiful they are. And they said to him, bro, you're, what's the matter with you? This girl's made you crazy. Those are just normal clouds. He's like, guys, those are beautiful, glorious clouds. And they just wrote him off as a crazy guy. But he said that image, the beauty of those clouds has been in his mind since then. And he knew that that was a sign from the Lord. And so as he told me that story, I sat down and I said, yes, that is a sign from the Lord. Because Psalm 19 says, the heavens declare the glory of God. And after we read the rest of Psalm 19, the other brother and I shared the gospel with him again. And he confessed faith in Christ. He's counted the cost. He broke up with his girlfriend. Yet he said, I've lost a lot this week, but I have a peace about me. So if you would just pray for him, he's going to join our gathering on Sunday. Young guy, 25 years old, who's moving forward and pursuing Christ because he sees the beauty of God and God has opened his eyes to the truth of the gospel. So the Lord is moving even in a difficult place like this. Amen. That's so encouraging to hear just the the ways that the Lord is at work. And just like you said, yeah, the heavens declare his glory. And so he's using creation and, and other things to draw people to himself. And so thank you for being a faithful witness there in that context. Eric, I want to ask you a question kind of similar to, to where you were just talking a little bit about just the city and just some of the context of the city, some of the challenges of the city. You know, this season on the podcast, I've been asking people who live and serve in different locations, all in urban context, what do you believe it takes to do faithful ministry in urban cities like Istanbul? You know, historically, we don't have a a good track record of, of doing really good ministry and faithful work in the context of cities. So from your perspective, based on your experience and knowledge and wisdom, what do you think it takes to do faithful ministry in urban cities? Yeah, man, we haven't even really scratched the surface on the complications of a city, just people constantly moving, coming and going, university students coming in and out, refugees, the major uber rich live here. There's so many things on top of Islam, on top of this mix of materialism and and Islam. So first off, it takes the grace of God. But if we get down uh, and looking at what are we responsible for, I think it takes people who can look both at the micro and the macro. We look at the macro of a city and 39 districts, huge swath, you know, millions of people walking around. It can be overwhelming, but someone needs to kind of look at the whole thing and see the big picture as a whole so that you can see the big puzzle and see how people on the micro level are fitting into that. So what do I mean by the micro? I mean, 
it's people who are focusing on the neighbor next door who aren't getting overwhelmed by this number 16, 17 million, but are striving to be faithful to proclaim the gospel to the people who are around them in their neighborhood. I think it does take people who love the city, who love the chaos, like the busyness. If you go to New York and you feel suffocated and then an urban context might not be for you. It might be for you that God, God calls us to do hard things sometimes that, that we must be reliant upon his grace for. But Istanbul is a place that's almost twice as big as New York, right? So we must think about and pray about and look at the macro and, and micro levels and not get overwhelmed by one or the other, but be able to focus on both of those. I also think I'm going to steal a phrase here from my friend, Andy, who talks about urgently patient faithfulness. I love those three words and the combination of them together is just awesome. So what is he getting at when he talks about urgently patient faithfulness? Well, the urgency of the gospel, when you're in a city of 17 million and you can cross the city on the metro line and literally pass thousands and thousands of people who are lost and dying, who have heard the name of Jesus, but only in the paradigm of Islam. So they've never heard the gospel. They've never heard a presentation of the triune God who loves them and desires for all people to come to a saving knowledge. Like that creates some urgency in you. My coworkers who's in language learning said he's in the taxi talking with this taxi driver, trying to proclaim as much of the gospel as he can. And finally, the taxi driver puts in Google Translate, I wish you knew Turkish so we could actually talk about these things. That motivated him in his language learning that he needed to go deep in language and culture. He had an urgency about him for the rest of that week to keep learning language. You need to be urgently sharing the gospel because there's a lot of people in need and a lot of people have not heard, but you must be patient, patient in that because people move to other cities because the city can be really stressful, right? The city can be just a hard place where people are moving past each other and you feel like you're not getting into good gospel conversations at times because people are just flying past each other, even in a really hospitable place like Istanbul, you must be patient and trust that the Lord is working and that the ordinary means of grace that God uses in our lives, his word in our own hearts and lives, in the lives of local believers, the gospel being faithfully proclaimed in a clear way in that context, that God will cause that to bring forth fruit. We trust that He's providentially working over all things and in all things. So that allows us to be patient and know that more than likely, and typically it seems that the Lord in his kindness is pleased to do a lot with 20 years or 30 years when we're wanting everything to be done like in a year or two, right? So trust that it's going to be exponential years and years in and to be patient and wait for that. And then the final thing Andy talks about is just faithfulness, right? Like faithfulness in the task, faithfulness in proclaiming the gospel, faithfulness in discipleship, faithfulness in building up local churches, and faithfulness 
one of my friends likes to say, what the Lord asks of us is to take the next faithful step, the next faithful step and be responsible for what he's called us to and what the task he's given to the church through the Great Commission. So those are just some of the things I think it takes to live in a place like Istanbul. That's helpful. Eric, this, this next question is, is more personal in nature. It's a question I ask everybody that I interview and would love to hear your thoughts. And the question is, day after day, week after week, and month after month, what keeps you there in that place? And why are you giving your life to this work? I just, in the Lord's kindness, the last nine years and even the five years of that before serving in a local church has just been an exercise of growing in an understanding of the Lord's sovereignty. And that's something that, you know, we're never going <laughs> to finish coming to a full understanding of what that means. But I, that's what I just always point back to. Like, why am I still here? Because God in his kindness through his word has shown me that he's sovereign, that he's working through his people, that he's ordained to send out people like me for churches to, to send people to the nations. And he's working in the midst of all that. If it depended upon me to convince people ultimately of Christianity, if it depended upon me and my strength to build up churches, if it depended upon me to get the gospel out and for it to be sweet to the hearers, like I would have given up like six months in, right? Like there's no way, like my Turkish is not going to be good enough. Any other language I learn is not going to be good enough. I'm insufficient. I get tired. Like I have a six-year-old son that wears me out. So what am I going to do if I'm like shepherding or discipling all these other believers around me? Like if this were dependent upon me, there is no hope. But God is sovereign. God is in control. God is working. Even when local friends have to move to other cities or even when coworkers have to go back to their country of origin, God is working in the midst of those things. He's using those things for his glory. Like none of us would have like chosen that the wars that happen around the world to start, like the evilness of man, the sinfulness of man. Yeah, that's why those wars are happening. But God is still using those times to draw people to himself, to bring people to a place where they're able to hear the gospel. Like over and over, the Lord is reminding me that on a micro level, on a macro level, he's sovereignly in control. And that has to be the ballast, the thing that's just holding us up, the foundation that we stand on, because that's the only thing that's unshakable, right? buildings are shakable. Our own hearts and minds can be tossed to and fro, but God is in control. That is what keeps me here day in and day out. Eric, thanks for sharing that. Last question coming up. Thank you so much for your time and just your thoughtfulness and responses. The last question I want to ask is, what is one thing you want everyone listening to this podcast to know or to do? Yeah, I think the thing that comes back to mind is I would just love everybody listening to see local churches as the primary agent, the primary method, and the primary fruit of the M task of 
the Great Commission, right? Of the task that God has given to local churches. So what do I mean by that? Others talk about it more eloquently, but I that idea of local churches being the agent. The Great Commission was given to local churches in the States. They're sending other parts of the world, our brothers and sisters in Brazil, Nigeria, Korea, being sent all over the world. They're being sent by local churches. And Lord willing, when they land, they're able to to enter into that place and look at the state of the church around them. And, And if by God's grace, there is a church there, see those local churches as the primary agent and the method that they will use and that God actually that God will use <laughs> to reach the nations, to proclaim the gospel, to faithfully build up men and women in maturity and Lord willing, send them out to places where the gospel is not yet being proclaimed in a faithful way. Because ultimately what we want to see is the, that fruit, right? More healthy churches. That's what we're praying for in Istanbul, that there would uh, we're doing the task to see healthy churches among peoples and places in our city as we partner with other people for God's glory. So seeing the local church as the agent, the primary agent, the primary method, and the primary fruit means wherever you are, dive deeper into your local church and trust that God is going to use that for his glory among the nations through your being built up, through your being sent out, through you building up and sending out other people. That's where it all starts is in our local communities where we're together proclaiming Christ, affirming one another, and loving one another, and living out that so that it might draw more people into the beauty of Christ and into the kingdom and the family of God. I hope you enjoyed hearing from Eric today. Please, as the Lord brings him to your mind, pray for him and his work in Istanbul. To hear more conversations like this, please subscribe to this podcast and be sure to follow us on social media. Thanks again for listening to this episode. This is Amazon to the Himalayas podcast. Thank you for joining us on Amazon to the Himalayas. This podcast is brought to you by the Billy Graham School at Southern Seminary. Please visit our website, www.sbts.edu bgs, where you can subscribe to the show and learn more. Also, if you have found these conversations helpful, please leave us a comment or a review and encourage your friends to subscribe to the podcast. Be sure to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter for more. This is Amazon to the Himalayas podcast.